I think ultimately, you know, there's a trust relationship, particularly because the sale, of course, is not the end of it, as we know. It's really the start of the relationship. So, you know, what you're you're looking, obviously, you're going to you know, help them affect change in their organisation and achieve some real business value, and therefore, there's going to be a, a lot of it face-to-face engagement. Uh, with the business ongoing and then hopefully you know it goes well and you're expanding your business with them so you know that's a you know trusted relationship that has to be built up so i think as you say you know sales is just the start so to build that relation to build that trust and to be able to really challenge the customer i think um you know customers don't want sellers that just turn up and respond to what they're asking for you know i think they're looking for you know sellers that bring something uh, organizations that bring something that you know share what they've seen in other organizations that challenge their thinking you know maybe stretch their thinking a little bit in terms of what they could achieve um, you know, bring business value cases uh, you know really help them prioritize where they should you know invest to you know, ultimately achieve you know the business goals Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Karen Clark. Karen's the Senior Vice President and Managing Director for the Americas for Anaplan. And in our conversation today, we're talking about how organizations need to stay laser-focused on revenue at a time when customers are tightening the budgets and shifting their buying behaviors. Now, Karen and I dig into three things sales leaders should be focused on as they plan how to prioritize their sales resources. We explore what Karen sees as the key sales planning disconnect, if you will, with sales leaders that's sabotaging their efforts to retain top sales talent. And we get into what leaders should be focused on with regard to, with regard to enablement and sales execution when the environment gets tougher. So we get to all of this and much, much more. But before we get to Karen, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So let's jump into it. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me, Andy. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Uh, so, well, tell us a bit about you and, and what you do, and you know, we'll get a little bit into your backstory, too. Yeah, sure. Great. Well, um, I'm the MD of Americas for Anaplan at the moment, and for your listeners, uh, hopefully some of them know Anaplan because we have about 2,000 customers globally, but uh, if they don't, we're a SaaS planning, uh, planning platform, so um, you know, we're recognizing Gartner as being in the leaders' quadrants, and uh, including for sales and operations planning, which I think is relevant to uh, you know, this discussion. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, but um, yeah, a few things about me, I guess. Um, I'm, uh, and I'm going to give something away here, but I'm in my third decade of being in the this fantastic profession of uh, you know selling. Uh, so three mm-hmm. decades in sales, sales management, and sales leadership. Um, I also have led. Um, a, well, you can probably tell I'm British, so I started uh, my a career. little bit. You came across, yes. yeah, <laughs> yes, from Derbyshire. For if you're trying to locate that uh, accent there, uh, but I started my career in the UK. Uh, you know, led uh, businesses across EMEA, and then spent four years in Singapore running businesses in Asia Pacific. Uh, before now being in the Americas, so um, that's a change. Uh, you know, for me, I've only been in America since the start of this calendar year, so uh, it's a new adventure. And um, I guess the third thing I would say is, um, uh, you know, the great thing about Anaplan, and I think, you know, as I said, in, you know, I love sales because it gives you such a insight into so many different companies and their mm-hmm. business. 
Uh, a great thing about Anaplan is I get to work with lots of CROs and sales operation leaders. So um, I get to hear a lot about what other sales operation leaders <laughs> and CROs are facing at the moment. So, um, you know, really interesting, both in terms of them being customers, but also, you know, peers in the market and how we're right. facing some of the challenges together. Well, and let's, let's start digging into that. So, yeah, uh, yeah we're, if we're not already in technically, I don't know if technically we're in a recession, but we seem, certainly seem to be heading that way for sure. Um, yeah, it's a, it's sort of these other factors that have sort of been at play is, you know, we got the slowdown, we've got, uh, you know, we had the great resignation oh. and, uh, you know, people are trying to find staff, but now some companies are also doing layoffs. And so, uh, it's a lot of uncertainty around, you know, individual sellers, individual contributors as well. So certainly adds up to a challenging time for sales leaders. Indeed. Yes. Yes. I'm hearing those same things. I have to say, as you said, recession, the uncertainty that's bringing in terms of, you know, how's it going to affect customers, how it's going to affect how they buy, what they buy, uh, labor, you know, the great recession, everybody's you know, seeing a late, you know, volatile market for labor and that's affecting, you know, sales attrition. So how do I retain my top talent in this market? And, uh, you know, obviously, ultimately, how do I get um, value out of the sales capacity that I've got and ensure that I'm really getting that productivity? So a lot of topics there that I think, uh, you know, are top of mind. And certainly when I was talking to customers at Dreamforce recently, <laughs> these were the sorts mm -hmm. of topics we were talking about. Well, it's interesting. I was reading about the, some of the employment statistics in the economy, and they're saying there's still, though, there's this, you know, fairly large gap between the number of, of vacancies that exist and, uh, you know, sort of the unemployment rate. And usually they want them more tightly correlated. But it seems like, yeah, the lot of attrition we're concerned about, but there still seems like this huge demand for sales talent out there as well, even though things seem to be slowing down. Yes, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's talking to revenue leaders that I was speaking to, you know, there's still a gap in their capacity. And so whilst obviously hiring is really important, uh, you know, how to retain your current talent, uh, ensure that they're rewarded, that uh, obviously therefore, you know, they're earning money um, and how to make sure that you're deploying that talent in the best way you know, across your territories, particularly with, you know, looking back to this uncertainty, you know, how are my customers going to buy and therefore which, you know, which segments are going to buy and how do I put my, my talent into those right segments? So I think, you know, uh, a lot of um, capacity issues certainly being discussed uh, you know, with revenue leaders at the moment. I mean, when you're saying capacity, it's not that they're under-resourced necessarily. It's just how they're allocating the capacity they have to make sure it's most productive. Yeah, I think that's a, a definitely a key topic. I mean, certainly you know, with attrition, I think people are looking at, you know, how do I ensure that, you know, I'm getting good productivity out of the reps that I've got? How do I ensure that I retain my talent by you know, getting that good balance rep performance? But then, you know, looking ahead in particular at the moment as a lot of, uh, you know, sales leaders are going into their planning for next fiscal, um, how do I you know, segment my territories? How do I ensure I'm targeting my reps on the right uh, parts of the market um, you know, where I know that they're going to be most productive? Uh, because I think, you know, there's certainly a, 
I'm, I'm hearing you know the phrase you know profitable growth now. <laughs> I think I mean, where before you know growth was I guess the mantra of sales organisations. Now right. that we hear much more about profitable growth and therefore you know how am I making you know, my reps productive and getting most out of the you know the the, the talent that I've got in my organisation. But are you, when you're talking to other CROs though, are you hearing that in terms of profitable growth? Because I, I was having a conversation with a company founder today in the SaaS world saying that they're thinking, well, yeah, we're given where things sort of stand is maybe we haven't, uh, maybe we need to start over-indexing maybe to a greater degree on uh, our existing customers and driving new revenue through them as opposed to not they give up new, new revenue development, but maybe shift the balance a little bit because they thought maybe we were too over-indexed on new logo acquisition and you know you get into tough times yeah you want to keep your customers you want to be able to mine your customers support them drive new revenue through them is do you see people rebalancing their portfolios that way yeah i mean i think certainly that you know do i invest in my existing customers my expansion opportunities or do i still look to grow in new markets is something that a, you know, a lot of sales leaders are considering um, and i think really there's an opportunity to be you know more sophisticated i guess you know that there can be a knee-jerk reaction to let's pull back and focus on our existing customers and of course, you know, that could be a good strategy, but of course, there are still customers out there that you know may want your products and services. Mm-hmm. So how do you understand actually where that propensity to buy is in the market, in your existing customer base, um, and also in the net new market? Because you know, this recession is going to affect different sectors differently. And so you know, maybe that some of your existing customers actually are the ones pulling back more so than perhaps some of their customers out in other segments. So I think mm-hmm. it's really that, that opportunity, instead of perhaps, you know, following, following historical trends to think about how can we use you know, data and information to help us target our sellers better um, and, and, you know, really ensure that we're capturing, you know, the market that is there. Yeah. So if we dive into that a little bit, is, is, so what's that, what's that look like in terms of, you know, what are, you talk about historical data, but what are the other data points? You know, there's certainly have a explosion of intent data that's now, you know, available for sellers and so on, but other, or maybe that and other data that sales leaders should be looking at to say, okay, here's how we're going to establish our priorities. These are the, these are the opportunity types that we think, uh, you know, higher likelihood they're going to make a purchase decision in the next 12 months or whatever. Yes, yeah. And I think there's, there's two steps to that, I'd say. There's obviously the plan for the year ahead, but there's also the agility, you know, during the year ahead. So that I think, you know, historically, uh, sales leaders, in a way, you know, although uh, we use technology a lot in terms of the planning processes and how we make adjustments, we're, we're perhaps not as modernized as we think. So I think there's a real opportunity to have more agility in the process ongoing. You know, we kind of historically set targets and quotas for the year and you know, adjustments may get made, but mostly we kind of look at this annual planning. And I'm, I'm sensing that, you know, that opportunity now to not only use those predictive insights in terms of, you know, what data can help me really inform where I'm going, you know, that propensity to buy, those indicators from the market, um, but also how do I use that throughout the year to continually adjust and refine what I do? 
Um, so, you know, as you said, you can pull data sets in. Uh, it can be simple things like, you know, are they, uh, what are they searching for? Are they hiring talent in the areas where perhaps you're selling? And mm -hmm. uh, all these different indicators that you can pull into inform you at the start. But then, you know, as you go through the year, you know, those predictive insights can keep informing you, obviously, what's changing in the market. But then also you've got your own data in terms of, you know, what's working. So, uh, you know, what's moving through your pipeline fast? Uh, what's your average sales price in certain areas? Uh, what's your conversion rate? Um, so, you know, also using that real-time data within your own business compared to that external data to see, you know, what's really happening in those territories and segments and, you know, adjustments required. Um, so I think uh, there's a lot of information that is available now that can help make really sophisticated decisions rather than kind of, you know, falling back on uh, a sort of gut feel or historical trends alone. Mm hmm. So in this in this environment, in you know, let's say at the individual contributor level, you know, we have, want people to keep them focused, motivated, productive, a lot of noise surrounding them, especially, you know, in a downturn. You know, you can look at, you know, the, the territory they're working on, uh, their quota, the comp. Uh, yeah. How do you sort of prioritize working through those and what would you do differently? I mean, you know, I've heard some sales leaders talk about, hey, we you know, have to segment our territories different or so on. What What's your sort of best advice for CROs based on your experience in this type of environment? Yes, yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, as you said, it's getting all the data points that can help you uh, understand where your best propensity to buy or the propensity for your sellers to sell is. And, and you know, that can be down to channel. It can be down to, you know, the partners, the individual account executives you've got. So really understanding you know, what they're good at, what their strengths are. So I think that's part of mm -hmm. it. Um, you know, combining that with data in terms of, you know, where your market is um, and really having a good view of matching the right reps to the right opportunities and obviously, you know, aligning the quota to the size of those opportunities. So really thinking about what the addressable, uh, you know, market is today uh, for those sellers and you know, doing that very intelligently. So building all that data in and you know, uh, applying, you know, if you have algorithms to calculate where you think um, you know, the opportunity is for the sellers, but, the, but then you know, really... Uh, you know, supporting them through the year in terms of looking at well, what's actually happening, and I think that's where you know what what is the coverage of the territory. And if we think about it, I'm sure you've seen this. Um, you know, mm -hmm. ter sometimes territories are richer than expected, and you can find that you know sellers are perhaps focusing only a narrow part of their territory. And so, you know, I mean, all the great technology that many sales organisations are using today to, you know. Uh, see what outreach is happening, what calls are being made, what coverage of the territory is, what engagement the marketing is causing in that territory. You, know, you can use that data to see what's really happening in the territories and make adjustments as well so that you, know, you can ensure that sellers have a fair opportunity to achieve their targets and um, you know, through the year make those adjustments to make sure that you know, hopefully what we're looking for is a really strong balanced rep performance across your business. So you, know, you don't necessarily just have the superheroes and and then a big gap to the rest of the performers, but you've got this really strong, you know, balanced rep performance across your business. And I think that's what, you know, is the um, ideal place that most, uh, you know, uh, sales and revenue leaders want to achieve at the moment to get that really consistent performance across the business. Well, yeah, you'd hope, right? Because 
certainly in earlier stage companies, there tends to be this reliance on superstar, you know, mm. one or two superstars you know, to drive it. But yeah, that's never sustainable, especially as you scale. Um, yeah. Well, quota setting becomes really tricky in this environment <laughs> because you want to make people feel like they have attainable targets that, uh, you know, build a sense of confidence they can reach them and so on. But, you know, we've had this trend in B2B sales certainly exist over the last decade as well under 50% of sellers are hitting their quota every year. It seems like that fundamentally, for me, I think contributes to, <laughs> contributes to sort of what I consider sort of broad, widespread performance issues in sales. I mean, how do we, companies sort of have to have, I don't know, little bit of courage to be more uh, realistic in their quota setting, especially you know, in the teeth of a downturn? Yes, and I think it has to align to you know, where your strategy is. And we're seeing, um, you talked about what a revenue leader is doing, and we're seeing revenue is also take a step back and think about what is it that they're actually trying to uh, you know, achieve. So where before, uh, you know, I've seen, um, you know, we were working with a, a company called Cox Automotive who were driving their sellers on you know, volume. It was all about volume, and now they've moved it to more about you know, revenue, and that drives a different behaviour. So it's also aligning to you know the objectives of the company, which might have you know subtly changed in um, you know in this period where uh, you know uh, the measures of success are different, and and the same as we talked about you know profitable growth, maybe that brings in different measures. So I think the first thing is to ensure that the the sellers are aligned directly to you know, what the business wants to achieve and obviously are motivated and uh, aligned to those objectives. So I think that's the first thing. And then, as you said, it's about really, you know, if you can uh, predict you know, where your market is, then obviously you can be more confident that your sellers can achieve those targets and, and also being bold enough to make adjustments. And that's where this agility comes in, I think, where... Right. You know, Rather than playing the year out and you know putting your stakes on the table and hoping you know, it's to keep assessing continuously what's actually happening, particularly in a market like this where you know we know it's going to be more volatile, we know that buyers are going to you know scrutinise decisions a little bit more. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to, uh, you know, I think we're all seeing it already that um, you know perhaps projects that were you know on the cards for this year maybe have been delayed or are, you know being reprioritised and. Um, yeah, so it's also really important that we arm the sellers with really understanding how you know they, they qualify well and that they understand that you know projects and investments are only going to be made if they can articulate the value to the customer. Uh, so it's really you know a call for the sellers also to understand that they have to really understand how they're going to impact the customer's business positively if they're going to be mm-hmm. successful. Uh, I think that's that's something that. Uh, you know, particularly in a market like this, is really critical. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it raises a sort of broader issue. And one I talk about here on the show a lot is is that I think those who survive, if not somewhat thrive during a downturn, change some of their focus uh, from a, at the individual level and the management level on execution and the ability to execute opportunities and execute deals more effectively because uh, you know, you've got same number of players oftentimes chasing fewer dollars how do you how do you increase your win rates in a downturn 
Yes, absolutely. And I, I think uh, some of that comes down to, you know, qualifying that you're in the right, uh, you know, obviously in the right sure. territories and the right market. So I think that's a good you know, start. And, and, you know, I think, as we said, a lot of that data, you know, looking at what's happening you know, in, in real time, uh, where are you know leads converting? Where are they slowing down? Where is the movement through the funnel? Uh, you know, not uh, moving at the pace that you would expect. Uh, so there's you know lots of information uh, that can help with understanding where sellers should be. But then once they're there, obviously what you're encouraging is you know, clearly uh, that there's good qualifi- qualification, but that they're really understanding why the customer would buy, and that they're you know engaged. With the client really understanding that you know why that organization is going to invest why they're going to change why this is going to be a prioritized project and so i think there's a lot you know that sellers can do to ensure that they're ultimately working on the right opportunities engaged with the right level uh, you know good old med pick <laughs> you know making sure mm-hmm. that they're they you know they understand the metrics they understand the pain they've got champions that get into the economic bias so you know i think all of these things become increasingly important uh, you know in a market such as this so putting them on the right territories is critical you know being willing and brave to adjust those and then obviously ensuring that that great sales excellence is uh, you know happening in out there in the field yeah which is <laughs> which is a challenge right um yeah i, I you know get back to this idea of of execution and I'm sort of curious in, in, in your business. I mean, how, what are sort of the you know key metrics that you focus on with sellers? I mean, I personally, I believe that not enough attention is given to, especially in the software world is given to win rates, which to me are sort of the metric that, that sales team should be focused on. Cause it is the ultimate vote of how effective your sellers are with the buyer um, you know, is that one that you track or are there others that you really track and that maybe come to the fore, like I said, when we're in a more yeah. tight economic times? Yes, absolutely. And I think this is something that, you know, we're hearing from a lot of sales leaders and certainly we do as well. Um, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, rep performance and when you look at, you know, the whole sort of sales performance management, what are those KPIs that you look at? And certainly, you know, conversion rates and from different sales stages of course because you you might want opportunities qualified out early but obviously mm-hmm. what happens with them you know, as you move through the funnel so uh, you know I think looking at that movement through the funnel when conversion happens I think obviously pipeline creation Andy I mean you know uh, the the creation of pipeline on a continuous basis you know what you know, what are the sellers creating as well as what are they converting and what is their overall coverage? Um, I think you know, pipeline uh, and the quality of that pipeline is something that um, you know, is increasingly being looked at, um, uh, you know, and the right type of pipeline. So I think that's there. And then you know, even you know, data, as I said, you know, this we kind of look at it as, you know, propensity to sell or propensity to buy. So from a seller's perspective, if you've got mm-hmm. multiple products, what are they? What are they selling well? Uh, into which segments, um, you know, what's their velocity uh, versus perhaps their peers. And this can be good coaching opportunities if you can use this mm-hmm. data to say, hey, you know, how come you, know, you lose these types of opportunities or you win them and your, your peers do differently? So I think, you know, there's a real opportunity to compare uh, across sellers, which gives, um, you know, great coaching opportunities as well. 
and then again, you know, broader looking at your markets, you know, you've got channels or partners, where are your channels and your partners performing in different sorts of opportunities. Um, and of course, ultimately, discount rates, um, uh, you know, are you enforcing, you know, the rigor in terms of your contract prices? So there's, right. you know, all right. sorts of, um, I guess, lead indicators, I would say that, you know, you can look at and you know, having this data to kind of slice and dice and draw comparisons and look for trends, I think, is something that, um, you know, really arms sales leaders and indeed even, you know, devolve some of this down to the reps so that they can, you know, hold themselves accountable as well for mm-hmm. And learn, you know, how they're comparing to their peers, uh, you know, particularly people that they hold in high regard. I always think it's great to expose that data so that, uh, you know, reps can see who they, you know, aspire right. to be and how they're performing as well. Well, so a question along the same lines is how, how often are, in your case, in your company, is how often are you talking to the buyers and say, okay, yeah, not just simple win-loss analysis, but you know, what was it about the interaction with our salespeople that made you want to buy from us? Yeah. I mean, how, yeah. how much knowledge do you have about you know, the buying experience itself and how do you apply that, bring that forward to you know, how you enable your sellers, how you, what type of people you hire in sales, for instance, even? Yes, yeah, I think that's a that's a really good and you know, I think sometimes when we're you know when we're reviewing sales talent, sometimes it would be great if you could clone people, wouldn't it? And uh, I have to mm. my my degree many years ago was in genetics, and I wish I could uh, I wish I'd known how to clone great <laughs> salespeople. But uh, yeah, I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful? But uh, you're, you're right. I mean, I think I mean certainly you know we we do win and loss reviews, and we use you know third party companies to help us as well, uh, so that we get you know that independent view of. Um, uh, you know, why we've won or why we've not won and, um, you know, really ensure that we're getting that feedback and playing that back to our sellers and, and obviously, you know, to how we execute to make sure, you know, that we're improving. So that's certainly something that we do, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, I guess, the end result. But I think it's also looking at, as you say, you know, those trends we talked about in terms of, you know, if velocity is slowing down or if we've got, um, you know, that we're, and something that's in a peaking, perhaps close no decision, I'll call it, you know, where you're in a process and then suddenly nothing mm-hmm. happens. Really looking right. into what's happening there and what we can what we can do about it. And I mean, for instance, I was having a conversation earlier today about, uh, you know, responding to RFPs. And one of the favorite topics, you know, you get those RFPs right. in, uh, you know, are you aware of them? Uh, you influence them. Uh, what's the opportunity to win them? Right. Win with those RFPs, and that, and that's you know a, a typical thing to you know monitor uh, and and then play back to the organisation about what well, if you are going to invest in RFPs, which can be extremely expensive as we know, uh, you know actually what are the good conditions for success that you ha- should have before you you know progress with RFPs, and I think that's you know a, a good you know a good example of how you can keep evaluating. Not just what happens at the end of the process, but you know all the stages of the process and and where you, right. uh, you know, can get momentum or obviously uh, you know maybe on the wrong path earlier in the sales process. Well, I mean, you talked about velocity earlier, and it's sort of related to velocity, but not specifically on it. But is I find that that most companies really don't understand and detail exactly how much time they've invested in order to win a deal and to correlate the time to 
size of the deal or the type of product they're selling or the type of customer they're selling to. And so, yeah, in most sales organizations, you know, you talk about, you know, what's the length of your sales cycle and the, you know, X weeks or months or whatever. But to me, that's sort of almost irrelevant because what really the only relevant measure or the most relevant measure for me is how many hours do I have to invest as an organization, whether it's an RFP or it's a big deal that we've worked on for a long time or small. I mean, how much of a salesperson's time and an SE's time and a sales frontline manager's time and a VP's time and so on. And I find organizations aren't tracking that. In my mind, they really don't understand their productivity that way because they really don't understand, oh, how much revenue am I generating per hour of time I'm spent selling? And I think when things get tough, you know, this becomes a really important metric to look at because to a point you're making earlier, if you're not doing effective qualification and discovery and you're getting a little sloppy, uh, yeah, you're going to find that you're investing even more time in opportunities that end up with no decision, for instance, um, or even those you won that you spent way more time on it than you should have. Yeah, it's just like... Sorry, I was going to say, I mean, I, was, I think well, it's, kind of... it's been something that sales organizations typically haven't really focused on, is it? That's kind of real cost of, of what we do, particularly in the B2B right. sales. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems, at least for me, this is, this is something I'm talking about more and more. I just think it's increasingly important as, is when you look at an organization like, I don't know, look at, uh, you know, the major consulting firms, Deloitte or somebody like that. Mm-hmm. I bet you they have that information because, you know, their people are, keeping track of how they invest, you know, spend their time, right? They're filling out time cards. Yes. And I, I think, I think that's the future of sales quite honestly is, mm-hmm. is being able to track to a specific opportunity. What it really costs, not most companies do this roll up cat calculation, you know, quarterly or at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And it's just an estimate. It's like, we have the opportunity to really understand that and then understand, cause that really tells you it's sort of the, effectiveness not only of the individual but of you know messaging and you know various other parts of the opportunity that you're working on yes yeah and i think as we said with this sort of view of profitable growth now i think you know uh, the cost of sale mm-hmm. is becoming something that's you know top of mind for cro's and I, I mean to your point specifically about i guess you know our core sellers and measuring that you know certainly our own organization and another organization we work with are measuring you know the kind of hours investment, the pre-sales investment, the resource investments that we're seeing mm-hmm. increasingly those built into the models uh, so that that can be captured and, uh, you know, and that time investment as well as you know, the resource along the way is included in them. But I think also, you know, from a sort of CRO and, um, uh, you know, the business leader's perspective, I think people are taking a step back, particularly, you know, if, uh, if we sort of turn back to COVID and what we've learned from, you know, COVID, um, mm-hmm. uh, looking at, you know, new ways to sell and uh, different cost models to sell in terms of uh, starting to think about, um, that, you know, it's a virtual world, isn't it? As we know, um, you know, if you, in the past, maybe if you think about your territories, you might have organized them geographically because you wanted to be close to the, you know, the customers. But um, mm-hmm. you know, these days, you know, I'm finding certainly that, you know, customers, although the HQ might be in one place, you find that the executives can be, you know, positioned Anywhere, all around right. the country. So right. and if you wanted to visit, then you'd probably find that, uh, you know, they'll be on a Zoom call with you anyway. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, 
I think this is fascinating because um, I mean, I remember way back in my career, uh, you know, um, when I was in London, taking, I think, half a day out once to travel out to Heathrow, uh, go and visit a customer. Um, and I got into the meeting room and with one of the customers and the other six, I think, were on a video conference. And this is probably, mm-hmm. you know, 15 years ago. And then back then I thought, well, this is interesting because I've effectively spent half the day for this one hour. And, you know, it's how effective are these people? And this was 15 years ago. And, um, you know, it made me think back then uh, that, you know, there's opportunities in the sales process, both with sellers and with pre-sales to look into models where we use, you know, virtual offshore uh you know opportunities and how we build our you know operating models and you know, even back mm-hmm. then you know at the time i was running a, a large pre-sales business across EMEA and we started to put in virtual pre-sales to really help uh, do more repeatable uh activity virtually mm-hmm. with clients and so you know that's one way of you know addressing the cost base and i'm kind of hearing you know a lot of that now post covid because we've got so used to this virtual world and that we're you know, very comfortable with the idea that you know, a lot of the sales process will be virtually and it's so much more efficient. And therefore, you know, your location of your sellers and the supporting you know, cast, if you like, uh, you know, brings the opportunity for new models. Um, and, you know, and, and we're talking to plenty of organizations who, particularly perhaps if they cover the SMB uh, mm-hmm. segments where you know, perhaps historically, you know, the cost of entry into SMB, you know, the richness, if you like, of that SMB territory and the you know many tens of thousands of you know potential customers there, you know, wasn't really open to them because of the cost of entry. Right. But now, you know, using um, different technologies, different location strategies, you know, they're able to address that you know SMB segment. Well, a question for you, because yeah, as you said, you've been in sales a while, not not as long as I have been, but you've been in sales a while. <laughs> and um, you know, I found in the pandemic, and it's interesting in your experience, you know, with your organization is is mm-hmm. found that people sort of overstated how much of sales sort of took place in person versus mm-hmm. virtually. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I just look at my own experience through the years selling, you know, seven, eight figure deals around the world. Uh, yeah, I did almost all my selling on the telephone, right? And this was, this was decades ago. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah, we didn't, actually, I did do my first, not to date myself, but did my first video call with a customer in the 80s. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I was, the preponderance of sales has always been virtual. Mm. It's just the median has changed, right? Well, now we have more video. It's more routine, though. You know, was using Skype for twenty years before that, but it's mm. it's like hasn't really changed that much. Yeah. Because sort of my point is is yes, it has, but it's always been. Yeah, you know, I was talking to one person who was saying, "Oh, well, yeah, we did seventy five percent of our sales were in person." And then you know, you drill down. Just talking to this client, and it's like, oh, well, okay, maybe five percent was in person. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I think, like, yeah, I understand totally. Um, I think what we've certainly seen a shift in is um, almost an expectation that elements of the sales process were going to be on site, and um, mm-hmm. you know now more acceptors that don't be able to take you know the demonstrations. Um, 
uh, you know, and certainly in my career, I, you know, I, I, I look back now, I think I probably was paid to be more a driver than I was a salesperson. <laughs> and I'm sure I spent most of my day, you know, in my car right. uh, than I That's did. Uh, you know, like that too, yeah. Yeah, facing customers. But, uh, um, but, you know, now I think there's an acceptance and certainly a lot of demonstrations that I see, you know, both in our business and, uh, you know, our customers' business. We're a lot remote now, and it's expected that you know that's how you that's the almost the norm that you will schedule right. these things remotely. It means that wider audiences can be engaged and the you know, the discussion and the solutioning. Um, so I think it's I think it's always been part of the cycle that you know you get on the phone and uh, do elements of it. But now I think more so you know, many stages of the sales process now are acceptable. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think there's definitely still a value in obviously meeting face to face. I think, um, uh, you know, particularly, you know, if you're doing big ticket sales, B2B sales, mm-hmm. then there's definitely a value in you know, building that rapport. And I think, you know, face to face helps build the trust. Um, uh, but, yes. um, uh, you know, uh, there's a, a balance, isn't there? And I think you know, certainly as we look at, you know, that cost effectiveness of sales and uh, understanding the cost, then you know, there were certainly you know increasing opportunities to uh, optimize the way that we you know do the sales process repeatedly. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, I think you know, there's sort of <laughs> one of my rules of thumb is when it comes to our use of technology in sales, which we've got these fantastic technologies. Is but to your point you made before is there's times you want to be in person. Mm. Is People need to understand it's just because you can do something with technology doesn't mean you should, mm. right? I mean, yeah, we could do, we could do what we do. Yeah, I have plenty of clients around the world that I've, you know, never, never met, um, nor I probably ever in person. Mm. But on a certain size deal, as you talked about, a bigger ticket deal, I can guarantee you that if I were competing against somebody and, you know, for, million dollar opportunity and they chose not to travel and I chose to travel to meet the client, I would win it. Yeah. And, and it's like, you know, yeah, we, we can, we can do entire, entire sales without ever visiting the client. But I think increasingly, you know, we're coming back to, and I'm seeing it already in some clients is, uh, yeah, the ability to go travel and meet somebody yeah. makes a difference. Yeah, I think ultimately, you know, there's a trust relationship, particularly because the sale, of course, is not the end of it, as we know. It's really the start of the relationship. So, you know, what you're you're looking, obviously, you're going to, you know, help them affect change in their organization and achieve some real business value. And therefore, there's going to be a a lot of face-to-face engagement uh, with the business ongoing. And then hopefully, you know, it goes well and you're expanding your business with them. So, you know, that's a, you know, trust a relationship that has to be built up. So I think, as you say, you know, we, sales is just the start. So to build that relation, to build that trust and to be able to really challenge the customer, I think, um, you know, customers don't want sellers that just turn up and respond to what they're asking for. You know, I think they're looking exactly. for, you know, sellers that bring something, uh, right. organizations that bring something that, you know, share what they've seen in other organizations that challenge their thinking, you know, maybe stretch their thinking a little bit in terms of what they mm-hmm. could achieve, exactly. um, you know, bring business value cases, um, you know, really help them prioritize where they should, you know, invest to, you know, ultimately achieve, you know, the business goals. So I think um, you know, that requires trust. And that's why I still think there's absolutely a place for, you know, face-to-face and, um, uh, you know, meeting uh, meeting our customers directly. Yeah. 
No, I, I agree. I mean, it has, I mean, maybe in some companies, uh, travel was used, you know, too broadly, right? I, I you know, spent a chunk of my career working for a number of different startups in the Valley and other places, and hey, we didn't have money. So mm-hmm. we were constrained when we decided to travel. It had to be worth it, mm-hmm. right? And there was something significant that had to take place. Otherwise, yeah, you did it virtually. Yeah, well, cost of travel today is very handy. I mean, you know, the the price of flying these days is uh, you know significantly increased, doesn't it? At the moment, so I think. Well, uh, actually, yeah. no. I was, I, was, I was telling the story to somebody. I, was, I remember back. Yeah, I worked for a CEO at the time. Most of my clients were in New York City. I was in the Bay Area, yeah. Um, and yeah, he he wanted us traveling almost every week, and so most of my clients were back on the East Coast. And I remember paying, yeah, this was, you know, 30 plus years ago. I'm paying 1500 bucks each way to get to the East Coast. It's like, that'd be in today's dollars, that's like $4,500 each way. Yeah. I mean, travel was, was really expensive. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we just made sure it was worth it mm-hmm. if we, you know, theory of constraints does yeah. wonders, I think. Yeah, I think, as we said, though, it's a, it's a bit more... It's interesting these days because uh, you know certainly as I you know I take trips to you know New York or wherever and I say okay let's right. meet um, some of the customers and I find that you know even though their base is there that you know that CIO might be based in you know Texas and they uh, right. the, you know the CFO is somewhere else and, and so actually catching them <laughs> that location is uh, uh, which brings back you know this um, this yeah. blend doesn't it you know between physically getting there and then um, uh, you know also supporting the virtual communication well yeah no i find with you know meeting clients same thing is is they're all around and when you go to meet you know we never (laughs) i haven't met in somebody's office forever i mean it's because everybody's working out of home or whatever you know we're meeting at uh you know a restaurant somewhere or you know sometimes a co-working space Uh, but it's yeah, I guess we saw yeah. COVID that we still managed, didn't we? You know, I, mean, I, I was locked in a bedroom in Singapore exactly. for three years, so <laughs> and we still managed to you know, grow the business. So uh, uh, it just goes to yeah. show, doesn't it, that uh, it is possible? <laughs> Absolutely, very possible. All right, well, Karen, well, thank you so much for joining me. If people want to connect with you and learn more about what you do, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, well, uh, get me on LinkedIn. It's uh, Karen Clark on LinkedIn with Anaplan. Happy to talk. Perfect. To you. Yeah. Clark with Clark with an E at the end. Clark with an E at the end, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Andy. It was a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, I appreciate it. And uh, we'll look forward to doing it again. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank our guest, Karen Clark, for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Bye.